I do, I sound edit these. One of the things that drove me nuts was somebody pointed out that I said, you know, a zillion times <laughs> when I was on the Mark Shea radio show. Oh, yeah. And so it haunts me to this day. Oh. And I edit 43 of those out of every single podcast. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'm your host. I'm the managing editor of wherepeteris.com. And today I am joined by two converts to the Catholic faith, Rachel Dobbs and Adam Rasmussen. Both of them are contributors to our website. Rachel Dobbs is a Catholic convert and has been happily married for 11 years. She has two black cats and she lives in Jacksonville, Florida. She works in digital projects at the library at the University of North Florida, where she received her bachelor's and master's in history. She's a novice Benedictine oblate. Adam Rasmussen is a lecturer in the theology department at Georgetown University. He has a Ph.D. in Theology and Religious Studies from the Catholic University of America, specializing in historical theology and early Christianity. He and his wife, Angela, have been married for 13 years and have three daughters. So, Rachel, you came into the faith in 1999, so it's been a little bit over 20 years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your faith background and how you came to the Catholic Church? Um... Well, my family was mostly Baptist evangelical, and that's what I grew up in. And especially during my teenage years, I lived for a time in Germany, and I became very interested in history, especially that of the medieval and early modern history. So I was reading Chaucer and Shakespeare, and I also immersed myself in other classic literature, Dickens, Victor Hugo, you name it. So I had this interest and this curiosity about how the church was, or at least how religion was then, especially when you look at the, the Reformation and you see this break with the Catholic Church and the Protestant ones and such like that. And I, I just had a curiosity about it. So when I moved... Down here in 97, when my daddy retired from the army, I happened to have an opportunity in which I didn't have the money to go to school at the time and I didn't have a job. So I happened to meet a friend back in the days of listserv email lists in the old internet days. And I was on one for Scottish, Celtic, and medieval history. And I met this really sweet lady on there who I'm still in contact with to this day sweetheart from Oklahoma who's Catholic and I was just curious when we were just starting to talk about what do Catholics do for Easter or Christmas and she explained to me what Catholics do especially around Easter she talked about Holy Week and the Tritium and all the things that are done during the Tritium and I was just I was struck because Baptists never ever do any of those things I mean to the Baptist, Catholics are not really Christians much at all. You know, I, I, I always have those doubts. I'm like, are they really Christians? But they actually are. And I'm like, wait, yeah, Baptists don't do any of this stuff. When we go through basically the whole passion for three days. So I, I was really struck by that. So I started to look around online and started reading various websites, some of those old ones. Uh, from those old apologists <laughs> that were on there. I got really interested in that. I was listening to WTN, watching some of that when I could. I read the Scott Hahn books. I read all those. And I just, the more I read and, and looking at it with my Bible, and I basically read myself into the church pretty easily, at least like before I started to RCIA. And so I would say probably like early part of 19, 1998 
I figured, yeah, I want to be Catholic. And then came the, I got to tell my parents, and that, that was, <laughs> oh boy, wow, that was a bit of a, you know, it was, that was a tough one to do. And I finally did, and they, uh, you know, I, I got two very different reactions from both of them. My mom, first thing she said was, oh, Rachel, why would you do that? My mom was completely flabbergasted I would do such a thing. My daddy, however, was curious because, see, my daddy is was actually a Jewish convert to Christianity. And so he had gone through a conversion experience before, and he knew how that was like. So he was curious as to why I did that. And because he was curious... He wanted to find out what I was getting myself into. So I gave him books. I gave him websites to look at. And, well, he ended up coming into the church in 2001. <laughs> so that was my fault. But I ended up going to RCIA, and then in uh, Easter 1999, I came into the church. So I read myself into the church. And I wanted to be, like, not just a Catholic, but, like, the most authentic Catholic possible. So it was like, if I'm going to be Catholic, I'm going to go all the way. So I ended up falling into traditionalist <laughs> stuff and like a Latin mass. And yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other story <laughs> or that's part of it. But yeah. So you clearly say that you had a love for history and you, you mm -hmm. got a master's degree in it. And of course, there's the famous Newman quote that fails me at the moment. Maybe you can remind me. <laughs> to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. It's how it's mostly said. So. Exactly. And you already had had a, a strong relationship with Christ before before Catholicism, or do you think that, that learning about the church and, and the historical connection actually built that up for you? Definitely learning about the church and, and coming into the church helped that much more because honestly, I wasn't sure where I should have been before that. I once thought that I either become a Catholic or I end up just going into paganism. <laughs> I was like, really, I was at a crossroads as to where I should be and, and what what I should be at because I knew I couldn't stay where I was. I could not. I could not take it. So... You are one of the early social media converts then through the friend mm -hmm. that you met over over a listserv. A listserv, uh, yes. <laughs> wow. Those yeah. Are, the right. yeah, the Catholic list listserv world, I, I never quite made it into that. I was I was sort of um a couple of years behind the early internet and, and yeah. reading about the faith online I probably didn't do until until five or ten years after that. Uh, it's, it's really, if it wasn't for the internet, I probably wouldn't be Catholic and I probably would not have met my husband. <laughs> the internet has done a lot for me. So Adam, you came into the Catholic faith in 2003. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you into the faith? Sure. It was a process that took place over about two years the way I say it to simplify is that I came, I converted to Catholicism from nothing uh, by way of Pentecostal Protestantism. So I don't consider myself a Protestant convert to Catholicism. I'm a nothing or a nun convert to Catholicism with Protestantism as the bridge that got me there. So first, most of my friends, this is, I'm... 18, 17, 18 years old at the time. Most of my friends are evangelical Christians, and there, although there's one Catholic, which is a really important part of this story. And I basically become a Christian, and that in itself is a whole thing that one could reflect on and talk about because there are so many contingent factors. A person here, an event that lead a person to become a Christian and then you don't know those people anymore things change in your life and yet that connection to Christ remains so I think of it as a mystery of grace so how does Catholicism enter in I wasn't unhappy with evangelicalism at all I liked the fervor this is Pentecostalism specifically so they're speaking in tongues um, which I didn't do personally but I was totally open to it and thought it 
seemed legit. It's in the Bible. But what happened is I did have one Catholic friend. And when I went to college, I was spending a lot of time with him. And when you go to college, often it's not convenient to go to church. And it's confusing because there's different groups that are trying to like poach the incoming freshmen. And the college, Washington State University, even collaborated in that because they would let them, all the different groups, post in the dorms their locations and their hours and such. Well, meanwhile, my Catholic friend could just walk to Mass. This chapel, a Newman Center, was just three, four minutes from our dormitory. And so this is like these accidents of grace that I was just referring to. So I decide to tag along, right? And this is my first experience. And he kind of warns me like, well, because, you know, kind of you bring a Protestant along, you don't know what they're going to think. And I think he was really nervous about it. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. Don't worry about me. You know, I'm not going to make a fuss. And so my experience of the mass, the liturgy was definitely what did it. Like I've been able over the years to reflect back and conclude that all the different things, the things I read, the internet forums or a book here. There was one really important book that I read. But the thing that did it was going to the mass. And then I saw what church was like in this small, quiet, English language vernacular Catholic church with the guitar and all young people, basically college. And just very simple mass, normal, nothing fancy. And I saw like, oh, so church can be really different from people clapping their hands and falling down on the ground and speaking in tongues, none of which I had a problem with. But for my own personality, it became apparent almost instantly that I was like, I like this kind of church better. And I had heard some people criticize Catholicism. That is a big thing of evangelicals just almost constantly here and there attacking Catholicism for whatever reason. It always looms large for some reason. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Oh, it's ritualistic, blah, blah, blah. Well, once I experienced it, I thought, if this is ritual, sign me up. This is good stuff. It's very calming. You know what to expect. It's not such an emotional roller coaster. Uh, it just clicked. And I think... I could go on and on about, well, then I read this or, you know, Catholic Answers. Yes, that was there. This website that I think is still around, fatmass.com, was influential. And there was a bit of a cesspool there, though. I wouldn't recommend uh, it to people. And maybe it's changed. But if anything, it's probably worse with all the anti-Francis stuff nowadays. But the thing that did it for me was the liturgy. So I talked a little bit about history with Rachel. What kind of historical theological context did you take with you to that first mass i'm just curious to hear mm -hmm. because it's a completely different experience than uh, a charismatic pentecostal meeting mm -hmm. I, I would assume that the pentecostals are a little bit unscripted in in how, in the rhythm of i mean maybe it has its own rhythm or its own its own liturgy but were you aware of the scripture readings were you aware of of the liturgy of the eucharist at all or was it something that you just took all of it in and things fell into place? Yeah, there is a liturgy of Pentecostal churches, even if they don't want to admit it. And from a theological point of view, they do perform liturgy. They do perform the public work of God, which is to praise God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we share that with them, even though we don't share the Eucharist. They print it in the bulletin. So, so you know, I think the anti- liturgy anti-ritual rhetoric didn't really work on me it just seemed like something people say who haven't been to, who don't know you know or maybe they had personal experiences of liturgy that weren't as positive as mine and and i can understand that but my i was a blank slate i was 19 years old and i was a blank slate i knew nothing about the liturgy of the word i had no historical conception of anything um i was surprised when i learned Again, talking about 18 years old, when I learned that Protestantism was like a 500-year-old breakaway from Catholicism, I didn't know that. They don't teach that in any schools that I went to. I went to a good school district in terms of stats and numbers, 
but they did not teach any religious competency or historical literacy that touched on religion. You know, teachers, public school teachers steer clear of that, which is too bad, although one understands why. So no, I was a blank slate. I was ripe for the plucking. And it, like I said, I was basically sold instantly. So Rachel, we didn't really talk about your first firsthand experience. You talk about how you read your way into the church, but a lot of times converts who read their way into the church, it's a couple of years of reading about the mass before they actually see their first one live. Um, I don't know if that was your experience or if you had visited a Catholic church before. <laughs> I, um, I, I had decided that I would go and try. There, there was a Catholic church that was within actually walking distance of where I lived at the time. And I actually, the first time I entered a Catholic, this was not for mass, but enter. This is kind of funny how this is. I snuck out of the house and walked up to the church, and I was so nervous. I mean, my feet, my legs felt like lead. And I, but I was hot. I mean, I was thirsty. It's Florida, after all. And I, I decided, well, I was trying to muster up the courage to go inside to at least get a drink of water. At least that. Maybe they'll understand so, I, I mean, this was on a Saturday afternoon. I wouldn't think anybody was there. But if I was told that, yes, people actually come in there on off mass times. So I, I inch up there, take a deep breath. I mean, my hands are clammy. I'm like, I could feel butterflies in my stomach. I gingerly open up the door. I go in and I kind of just stop there in the lobby. And, um, you know, I furtively ask where the water fountain is you know they pointed out and and then i'm like oh i saw the sanctuary i saw you know the doors going into the sanctuary and so well maybe i should do that so i i just really i felt like these doors are like big iron doors right now they weren't but you know <laughs> like gingerly opening up creeping looking in and trying to adjust my eyes and it's dimly lit and there is this red lamp and a couple ladies you know praying and so i i gingerly walk in and i literally had my back against the back wall like kind of just inching in there and inching up to like at least the back pew and sat down and i was like my heart was pounding i was clammy all over i was freaking out i was like oh dear i must be doing something really bad but you know it I, I, it struck me like, wait, there's people here on a Saturday afternoon coming to pray. Who does that at a Baptist church? Nobody, because the church is usually closed. So that struck me. <laughs> and so I figured, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I am going to muster my, my courage again. And for another week, I'm going to try to come here for the five o'clock mass on Saturday. So I snuck out of the house again. <laughs> because my parents had no idea what I was doing, I think. <laughs> and I went creepily going up to the church and went there for my first Mass. And I was just, I noticed that there were some similarities. To, like, like I, I, first of all, I noticed it wasn't all boogie-woogie, you know, like, you know, like the crazy stereotypes, the anti-Catholic stereotypes, you know, the Mass, you know. But no, I mean, it was, it was just a regular suburban Mass. It was just regular. And I noticed, wow, they they talk about the gospel. There's there's Bible passages here, and then there was a good homily. And so it, I ended up, okay, all right, this this is okay, interesting, all right, you know. I, so I I actually would sneak out like on Saturday afternoons and go to that mass several times, <laughs> and then we had to move from there. So I, that's when I really had to tell my parents, like, okay, I really want to become a Catholic. But I think it just, I gradually got into that because I had watched EWTN's liturgy a lot. I had done that and I learned already. I knew, I knew up here, I knew like, I knew with the mind, I knew a lot of stuff here intellectually, but it was, it was the heart part of it. It was the immersion part of it that I had to get used to. 
so the timing of you guys, I mean, you both became Catholic, I guess, within five or so years of each other. Adam, just out of curiosity, what did your parents think? How, how did that go over with them? My dad was actually a, a convert to the faith, but it's funny because he, he was one of those marriage converts. He was sort of a lapsed Methodist, and he and my mom were dating, and he really, his reason was he thought it would be good that if they got married and had kids, that both parents would be the same religion. And in a lot of ways, I compare him to a cradle Catholic who started at 26. And for the next 42 years of his life until he passed away in, in 2016, so he spent most of his life as a Catholic, he grew in his faith. He had a very quiet faith, and he preferred to be the person who helped out at the Christmas tree sale. Uh, he was an usher for a long time. He was a lector, but it always made him nervous because the first time he ever did it, he he lost his page and stood up there at the at the pulpit trying to find the right one, and nobody was coming to help him. <laughs> but he never actually told his parents. I think they may have gotten a hint after a while, and they knew my mom was Catholic, but they were uh, very polite type people, Methodists, quiet, sober, and we talked about gardening and, uh, you know, there were taboo subjects that just never came up at the table. So that was sort of how the, the peace was maintained. I think my grandparents would have been open to it, not open to it. I don't think they would have agreed with it, but they would have definitely been, they would have been, they would have smiled and said, oh, that's nice. Like when my brother went into seminary, I think that struck them a little bit harder. I think they were just happy that that he went to church. But Adam, I don't know if you want to talk about how, how your family and, and friends took that. A lot of the people who convert from Protestantism, like Rachel, or the people you who've written a lot of those books, the Coming Home Network and the Surprise by Truth, they all have difficulties with family. But my story is not part of that literature and that movement because... I was not a Protestant convert to Catholicism. I just had a brief foray into some Pentecostal churches, which my family have no nothing to do with that. I feel like my conversion was such a breeze when I hear other people's stories. You know, like Rachel's talking about sneaking around and, and all these difficulties. I just, you know, got to do whatever I wanted, and I never met any opposition from anyone. I never had any obstacles in my way. It was a really great example of, of 20th century and 21st century religiosity where you become an adult and you can pick whatever religion you want. And, and I picked Catholicism. So I think uh, for me, it's been very easy and very pleasant. So I'm blessed. So you've both been in the Catholic faith for around two decades. And obviously that's Becoming Catholic is sort of the beginning of the story. It might be the end of the movie, might be the end of the book, but you have the rest of your life to live. And as anyone who's been Catholic knows, it doesn't solve all of your problems. It doesn't take all the pain away. It doesn't mean you, you still don't face difficult moral decisions, life decisions. Through our faith, we're able to approach these issues differently these concerns, these sufferings. Rachel, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about how your faith journey evolved after you were received into the church? You, you alluded a little bit to your foray into radical traditionalism, but ultimately, since, since Francis w was elected, and we've interacted online for three or four years now, you received him very positively, and, and I know Adam has as well. I guess what took you from there to here? Well, I think it probably started the around maybe 2005, 2006, around that time period. Uh, I started to, to notice that in reading traditionalist publications, I was noticing just how often it was mostly complaints or accusing others of heresy or it was constant complaining and the one thing that struck me that was not there 
was where's the love? Where's the compassion? I'm not seeing that anywhere here. So I stopped reading some of those publications. I, like, I had a subscription to The Wanderer. I stopped reading it. I had The Remnant for a time. Stopped reading that. Several of these others in these, these websites I just stopped looking at. But I did continue to read Varati Chaley and Father Z and some of these others until 2013. Until the day when Pope Francis came onto that logia. Because I saw in real time, because I was looking on the website, I was looking at Rorati Chaley, I was looking at Father Z, and I was seeing their reactions, and what I saw disturbed me. That the first thing they did was criticize him for some of the smallest things. Like, oh no, he did not come in front of the loggia in a mozetta. Oh no, no red cape around his shoulders, how dare he? Oh look! He's wearing black shoes instead of red ones and stuff like this. And I was like, and then there was like all this other stuff that was being put out of how he was this terrible heretic or something like that in Argentina. And it just, I saw immediately this, this, this hostile opposition to him. And I'm like, this can't be right. This just can't be right. He's our new Pope. Why are you doing this? And from that point on, I was like, I cannot look at this stuff anymore. And one of the top reasons was, and the reason why I stopped looking at those trad publications previous years, is because I didn't like what it was doing to my soul. I didn't like that it was making me bitter, and making me so proud, and making me so judgmental of others. And where's the love? And because I look at well, what is the essence of our faith? You know, you look at what the gospel is, what's the essence of that? And you look at what our Lord says in, in stuff like the Sermon on the Mount or the Judgment of the Nations part of it, the, the Matthew 25 chapter. You, you look at that and compare to the kind of stuff that you get like in the weird, you know, the weird Catholic sphere. It's just, there's nothing of the gospel in it. And and I'm seeing a Pope Francis up there who is telling all of us, challenging all of us, hey, you need to start looking at, you need to look at the gospel. You need to start living this stuff. And they were just angry about it. Rachel, you, you raise a very good point because my own journey, it's funny, my, I didn't grow up traditionalist, but on my mom's side of the family, my grandfather was very anti-Vatican II, wanderer, reader, very reactionary. I would say that up through my mid to late 20s, my faith was largely based on fear of hell and being right than it was about joy. Like I had, I have to say, I mean, I kind of envy Adam for his, his happy, clappy Pentecostalism. For me, I didn't, it dawned on me one day because I've struggled, struggled with depression and, and things like that in the past and had career disappointments and early on. And I thought, well, shouldn't I be like turning to my faith about this? And I realized I had never derived a single ounce of joy from my Catholic faith. I mean, that's probably an exaggeration, but in my entire life. And, and, and the Bible talks about joy and mercy and tenderness and kindness and a God that loves you like a father and, and, and a gentle mother and that wasn't my experience at all. And so I, I kind of started a journey in the later Benedict years and started to, and actually it was his writing that kind of turned me on to the entire idea of an of a, a encounter with Christ, of, a, of an intimate friendship with Christ, of being open to the Holy Spirit, the idea of a journey. In one of his interview books, he was asked, how many ways are there to Christ? And Benedict said, as many as there are people. And that really struck me because I previously I had struggled back and forth with some of the things from my reactionary upbringing. One of them was the death penalty. I just couldn't reconcile this ruthless idea of let's it's a, it's totally great to 
execute that guy as a punishment. And I was barely aware of, of what John Paul had said about the death penalty prior to that and what the American bishops had said prior to that. And it was very freeing in a way to embrace the magisterium, the, the living magisterium on the death penalty. And one of the things that I let go of was this one-size-fits-all Catholicism. I didn't appreciate that people come from different backgrounds. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to come from an intact practicing Catholic family that kept us on the straight and narrow, quote unquote. And I didn't appreciate the breadth of experience that other families have, that other people grow up in. I just thought, well, they need to learn Catholicism and straighten their lives out. I didn't know how to listen. I sort of had a little bit of even, I'd say, disdain for my Protestant relatives on my dad's side. And my dad maybe didn't know that I was dealing with this internally. He's, he was the most patient man on the planet. So it, he didn't, he didn't really stand up to my mom or maybe didn't, maybe took it all with a grain of salt, but maybe didn't realize the effect that it was having on some of us. And, and so then in 2011, my parish got a new pastor who had who exemplified this whole notion of smelling like the sheep. Uh, he met with people one-on-one. -on -one. He accompanied them through their struggles. I remember my wife and I were uh, in an argument over whether or not to buy the house that we live in right now. And it was Christmas Eve, and we had the pastor on speakerphone... <laughs> mediating between the and I never had that that personal relationship with the living church you know there was no RCIA for for me it was all going through the institution going through the systematic part we got married out of state so we only met with the priest a couple of times we didn't really have priests in and out in our family in and out of the house in the family so the idea of actually going to a priest with a problem going to a pastor going to the church with a problem was a totally foreign concept to me. And I actually, I, I wonder if it's a foreign concept to most priests, which is some, you know, something else. But I mean, like day-to-day -day problems, I can understand if somebody, I, I just assumed the only time you'd go to a priest for comfort was when somebody died. But yeah, so, so I can, I can understand. And then, and then Pope Francis was elected in 2013, just as I was emerging from that old mindset. So it just clicked very carefully. I had become less stuffy and rigid about the liturgy, about everything being perfect. I looked at people's intentions. I looked at priests and saw that they were they were working really hard. And if the altar linens weren't quite right, like stop picking on them. I don't know, Adam, you had an easy conversion. <laughs> so so you say. But can you think of, maybe you can share a little bit with us about your subsequent journey. Your wife, you said, is, Angela, is also a convert. Were you, did you know her before she became Catholic? Or how did you two get together and how did, how did your faith grow from there? Yeah, yeah. Her exposure to Catholicism occurred uh, in large part because of knowing me. Um, so then she, and I, you know, echo what what Rachel said she used the words bitter proud and judgmental I was never in the Latin mass group or anything like that but I did read uh forums and I did read Father Z's blog to give an example and everything Rachel said is 100% true the, the it is an extremely toxic environment and I was being exposed to that in small doses. And I think because of my own personality with uh, Angela and me being friends and then dating, she was sort of forced to confront it. And it's only a testament, I think, to Grace that I didn't completely uh, repel her and anyone else I came into contact with. Um, because sometimes I would have that um, know-it-all attitude that is not a good idea if you're trying to share the faith. Just a pro tip for everybody out there. Uh, I don't recommend being a stuck-up know-it-all if you're trying to share the gospel with people. But in any case, 
uh, yeah, she had to confront that, and her story is completely different from mine. But I really wanted to re-echo the toxicity of that environment. And then that was the same thing you were saying, Mike. And I think so many people have experienced that of just joyless condemnation. It's an ideology, and it almost becomes a parasite living in your mind that will tear away from you the Holy Spirit and the gospel and real Catholicism until you're sent into a parody of the church that mostly exists on the internet at this point. Um, and, and I began to see bits of that too and was mostly able to steer clear. But for a while, I think I was in real danger of being sucked into that because when you get into that apologetics and learning about, well, what about indulgences? What about this doctrine or that? Because, you know, I had to go through that coming from the Protestant stuff. You, you have to look into that. You know, you're not going to just be like, oh, sure, whatever. Right. Um, you're susceptible to this extremism, this radicalization that takes place online. And we see this outside of Catholicism, too. It's the same phenomenon in different religious groups. And I, I, again, to reiterate, I began to see that I can distinctly remember Father Z's blog as something that I would read from time to time. This would be around 2006, 2007, 2008, you know, about 10 plus years ago, starting to be like, this guy's mean. And like, what kind of a priest is this guy? And even when he was right about things and he knew how to translate Latin and stuff, kind of like, who cares if it's just all bitterness and arrogance and pride and thinking that there's only one way that's the correct form of Catholicism. What is all that worth? Uh, so what if you're right about how to translate the prayer? That's worth nothing if you don't have love, to kind of paraphrase St. Paul. My journey has been an ongoing conversion, and that's how I think of it to this very day. Because following what I just said, I was veering towards some bad stuff because of radicalization on the internet. And then largely due to my studies and also just being too busy with my studies to bother with blogs and stuff. I started to see that like these bloggers and people on Catholic answers, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't have, they have not researched this stuff. They parrot certain stereotypes and ideas about the mass and about this and that. Uh, they make stuff up. This is like getting into the whole imagisterium and just they make stuff up that's not true and then act like it's a dogma uh, or it's the only correct thing. And so I had to keep converting away from that and to not fall into that, which was a very real danger for me. I think especially in my early years, I remember being judgmental and I remember thinking liberal priests were heretics and, and blah, blah, blah. You, you know all this stuff. And so I was able to really begin to emerge to where I made a clean break, where I basically stopped reading that stuff completely around 2012, a little bit before Francis, because it was just like Rachel was saying, I could see where it was leading me to a dark place that is not Christianity and that is not Jesus. Father Z, to name names, and many others, okay, many, many others, I began to see the darkness there in terms of condemning others, judging others, pride, uh, thinking there's only one true Catholicism. And I made a clean break with that around 2012. I made the decision, I can remember it quite clearly, that I needed to get back to basics. That's how I framed it. I needed to get back to the gospel, to the words, you know, the red letter, the words of Jesus, and forget about a lot of this silly stuff about fighting about Latin or fighting about how things should be done, rubrics and rules. I'm not against rules at all, but they can't be put ahead of what really matters. They need to be kept in their appropriate place, which is relatively low down in the scale of things that matter to God. And so I kind of went back to that, stopped reading that garbage. And then lo and behold, a year later, Pope Francis comes out. He starts making these little gestures. I, re I remember the first one I saw was he rode the bus back to his hotel to pay his bill himself. 
it became clear almost immediately that he was going to emphasize, to use my own words, he was going to emphasize, I think, simplicity, humility, and just the core essence of the gospel. He was not going to be worried too much about smaller things like rules and regulations. He was going to go for the heart of what really matters from the gospel. And then Evangelii Gaudium came out, and that was super clear. And so I was in the perfect place to receive Pope Francis, and I was not surprised when I saw people starting to attack him. I could remember very early on, I started thinking, these people are going to have to make a decision. Are they going to stand with the Pope and receive a little bit of correction from him and a little bit of reorientation in terms of priorities? Or are they going to fight the Pope and contradict this principle at the heart of Catholicism where we are all under the universal leadership of the Pope, something that conservatives had been defending for decades? And I was optimistic at first that they would, as some people say, repent and submit to the Pope. But as time wore on, it became clear they were not going to do that. And it was a bit of a scandal to me. I was glad that I had escaped from that before it all blew up. It was a bit of a scandal still to see, you know, like some people have been talking about Scott Hahn lately because he praised Vigano. Um, yeah, it's a bit demoralizing to see someone that where maybe you'd read a book he'd written or something, and you just think, how can you say that? That's unbelievable that you're that you're saying this now. That shook me a little bit, um, even though I felt like I had narrowly averted disaster. More recently, I've been learning more about money and the money behind the scenes and the politics of it, like like Don writes about and other many people have written about. There is so much political stuff that is trumping the true Catholic faith here. And that has been another scandal for me to start to see that, what I call corruption. I think that's corruption within the Catholic Church. And that's been hard to accept how deep it is, how widespread it is. Vigano is the poster child for it, but... He was the apostolic nuncio to the United States. He was the most influential voice in this country in terms of deciding which priests should become bishops for, for several years. And he, he has been revealed as a complete sham, just awful, uh, paranoid, full of nonsense, rejecting Vatican II, rejecting Pope Francis. And I just am still trying, like so many of us, reeling from the shock of that corruption. So I feel like my conversion continues, you know, and when I say conversion, it's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in what you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's rooted in the person of Jesus who reveals the father to us. So there's no doubt whatsoever about that. When I say conversion, I just want to make that clear, but it does mean we, we, I continue to readjust mentally and to look back at things I believed two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, or things I even believed that were factors in choosing to become Catholic, where now I look back and say, well, no, that's, I don't agree with that. Some of the things I thought when I became Catholic, I now realize are wrong. And that's kind of the paradox that God does good, even in the midst of confusion, sin, and, and error, just because I had some confusion and uh, bad ideas when I became Catholic, that that has in no way invalidated my Catholicism. I've just had to, over the years, purify those things away. And hopefully I'm continuing to move towards God. When one makes that conscious decision to follow Christ as a member of the Catholic Church, they're a part of the body of Christ. They're with the Church. I hear a lot of conversion stories and I mean, maybe it's it's reflected in, in yours, Rachel, but a lot of them are sort of like, okay, well, someone was able to prove to me in a book that the Catholic Church has always taught this and this and this, and this is what the early church taught, and this all lines up, and the church has believed this from the beginning, and this is what the Catholic Church is, and this is what the Catholic Church stands for, and it was really hard to get over veneration to Mary, but I was able to do it in the end. 
And so I got to the point where the Catholic Church agreed with me, almost. Instead of I accepted the magisterium of the Catholic Church as authentic and true. And I think when faced with some of the surprises about the Catholic Church, I, I think of Steve Ray, who's a popular Catholic apologist and who has written or co-written now two books about the primacy of the Pope. Of course, he's not actually, from my experience, he doesn't talk so much about what the primacy of the Pope actually is. His intention is to convince Protestants that it exists. I'm sure you've witnessed some of this, Rachel. I don't know if, if you can speak to that. Yeah, I've seen this at least among some of the people that I used to talk to at my previous parish. You know, during the Benedict years, for instance, they were especially, they liked Benedict because of the Montproprio that came out, I think it was in 2007. You know, the one that would basically allowed for more Latin masses. And they they were happy about that. And they were, they were fine with Pope Benedict. They weren't just fine about JP2, but Pope Benedict seemed to be going the right direction, you know, in regards to liturgy and getting things back the way things were. And then, and then Francis comes and yeah, their, their completely allegiance turned on its head and instead they become very hostile toward him. So I've seen that. And, and again, that does come from probably more the case of, I will agree with whatever the Pope is saying, as long as it's what I already believe or as long as he already aligns with my political and socioeconomic beliefs on matters. And instead of listening to what he says as the vicar Christ on earth, as the head of the church and learning from that, it, they try to do it the opposite way. And, and I've seen that. Yeah. Changing the topic a little bit. And this is, this is what I, why I really wanted to have, a podcast with people who had converted to the Catholic faith. You see a lot of rhetoric, especially with progressive Catholics, cradle Catholics, some pro-Francis Catholics, basically that it's converts to the Catholic faith who have been, who are behind this resistance to Pope Francis. And as converts, that's got to sting a little bit when you hear people say that kind of thing or, or rub you the wrong way, or, or maybe, maybe you understand it. Maybe you think to some degree it's justified because so many of these prominent people are converts. Um, then again, none of these Italian critics of Pope Francis are converts. Cardinal Burke isn't a convert. Raymond Arroyo is a cradle Catholic. Adam, do you think that some people have unfairly attached a stigma to converts in light of Pope Francis. And, and actually, I saw some of this even before Francis became Pope, frankly. I think one of the things that's, that's definitely true about people who come into the faith as adults is they are much more intentional and much more thoughtful about their faith. I mean, it's, it's a major life change. I don't know if I could change religions. I don't know if I could do it. I never, I never have. I've never seriously considered it. For me, I've considered maybe walking away, but I've never really considered joining the Lutherans, for example, or becoming Pentecostal. One thing I think that you brought up, Adam, you talked about how you are still converting, and I think that's a that's a great phrase there. I think for some people, they and this includes cradle Catholics, traditionalists, they reach a point where they think they know it all and they stop that development. One of the things that disappoints me since Francis has been elected, I have learned so much from Pope Francis about simplicity. He's reoriented me in so many ways. You talk about when he was first elected, that statement, poor church for the poor. I think for years, I hadn't even really thought about the poor, except maybe in general terms. I think my faith was more about truth and dogma and orthodoxy, which aren't bad things in themselves. But when you forget the Christ's message to the poor, for example. Adam, do you, do you have any thoughts on this? Yes, 
it is an unfair stereotype about converts, and I would ask people to stop using it. There have been prominent converts, some of whom, you know, uh, are easily named, um, all these people who wrote these books and such, who have become traditionalists and turned against Pope Francis, and so that's where the stereotype comes from, okay? But that doesn't make it right or correct. We were brainstorming of, well, what about all the converts who aren't traditionalists? And there's plenty of them out there. Uh, so it just doesn't make sense to say it. Um, and it does kind of sting just because th there is always uh, a difficulty when I think someone joins the Catholic Church of feeling like an outsider. And the reason is that the Catholic Church is not just a school of philosophy that you can buy into, okay? It's not like becoming a Marxist or a transcendentalist or something. The Catholic Church is a culture. It, actually, there are many cultures within the Catholic Church, but within a given context, like for me, North America, the United States of America, there is a culture there of traditions, customs, things that have happened, networks of people, associations. You are joining... Yes, you are assenting to certain beliefs, right, about uh, the Trinity, the Incarnation, uh, the Virgin Mary, the Church, the sacraments, etc., etc. Yes, that's at the heart of it. But you are also joining this new community. And to then see people kind of snarkily sniping about convert neuroses or whatever on the Internet, um, it's like, oh... So are we second-class citizens then? It can be hard to change religions. I said how I had an easy time of it, but many other people have a really hard time of it. And so we don't need that. We want people to convert. Christianity, by its very nature, is an evangelizing religion. Go forth to all nations, preaching them to follow everything I taught you. That's what we do. So to have any kind of sniping about converts is completely ridiculous. This concludes part one of our conversation with Adam Rasmussen and Rachel Dobbs about their experiences as converts to the Catholic faith. Please join us next time and listen to us discuss the state of the church and how they would advise fellow converts, cradle Catholics, theologians, and bishops to respond to the ongoing reactionary resistance against the Holy Father. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.